Chapter Eight of The Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Eight. I reckon this always that a man is never undone until he be hanged. Two Gentlemen of Verona. I now began to entertain sentiments of profound gratitude toward the young officer at Mobile, who kept me from going to Fort Pickens. Rejecting the tempting request of my Philadelphia companion to remain one day in Montgomery, that he might introduce me to Jefferson Davis, I continued my journey due north. Effect of Capturing Fort Sumter when we reached the cars, my baggage was missing. The omnibus agent, who was originally a New Yorker, and probably thought it precarious for a man desiring to reach Washington to be detained, even a few hours, kindly induced the conductor to detain the train for five minutes, while we drove back to the Exchange Hotel and found the missing valise. The event proved that delay would have been embarrassing, if not perilous. A Georgian on the car seat with me, while very careful not to let others overhear his remarks, freely avowed Union sentiments, and asserted that they were predominant among his neighbors. I longed to respond earnestly and sincerely, but there was the possibility of a trap, and I merely acquiesced. The country was intoxicated by the capture of Sumter, a newspaper on the train, several days old, in its regular Associated Press report, contained the following. Washington to be captured. Montgomery, Alabama, Friday, April 12, 1861. An immense crowd serenaded President Davis and Mr. Walker, Secretary of War, at the Exchange Hotel tonight. The former was not well, and did not appear. Secretary Walker, in a few words of electrical eloquence, told the news from Fort Sumter, declaring, in conclusion, that before many hours the flag of the Confederacy would float over that fortress. No man, he said, could tell where the war this day commenced would end, but he would prophesy that the flag which here streams to the breeze would float over the dome of the old capital at Washington before the first of may let them test southern courage and resources and it might float eventually over faneuil hall itself an officer from general bragg's camp informed me that all preparations for capturing fort pickens were made the united states sentinels on duty upon a certain night being bribed but that nemo's intimation of the intended attack frustrated it a copy of his letter having found its way into the post, and forewarned and forearmed the commander. Everybody was looking anxiously for news from the North. The predictions of certain New York papers, that the Northern people would inaugurate war at home if the government attempted coercion, were received with entire credulity, and frequently quoted. There was much admiration of Major Anderson's defense of Sumter, but the opinion was general, that only a military sense of honor dictated his conduct, that now, relieved from a soldier's responsibility, 
he would resign and join the rebels he is too brave a man to remain with the yankees was the common remark far in the interior of georgia i saw fragments of his flagstaff exhibited and highly prized as relics we dined at the little hamlet of west point on the line between alabama and georgia and stopped for two evening hours at the bustling city of atlanta our stay was enlivened by a fresh conversation in the car about northern spies and reporters who were declared to be infesting the country and worthy of hanging wherever found apprehension about arming the negroes we spent the night in pursuit of sleep under difficulties upon a rough georgia railway the next morning the scantiness of the disappearing foliage indicated that we were going northward in augusta we passed through broad pleasant shaded streets and then crossed the savannah river into south carolina companies of troops bound for charleston began to come on board the train and were greeted with cheering at all the stations a young carolinian taking me for a southerner remarked the only thing we fear in this war is that the yankees will arm our slaves and turn them against us this was the first statement of the kind i heard persons had said many times in my presence that they were perfectly sure of the slaves who would all fight for their masters in the last article of faith they proved as deluded as those sanguine northerners who believed that slave insurrections would everywhere immediately result from hostilities at lee's station we met the morning train from charleston within two yards of my window i saw a dark object disappear under the cowcatcher and a moment after a woman wringing her hands shrieked my god my god mr lee killed lying on the track was a shapeless gory mass which only the clothing showed to be the remains of a human being the station master attempting to cross the road just in advance of the train was struck down and run over his little son was standing beside him at the very moment and two of his daughters looking on from the door of his residence a few yards away in the first bewilderment of terror they now stood wildly beating their foreheads and gasping for breath in strange contrast with this scene a martial band was discoursing lively music and people were loudly cheering the soldiers buoyant life and grim death stood side by side and walked hand in hand our train plunged into deep pine woods and wended through large plantations whose cool frame houses were shaded by palmetto trees the negro men and women who stood in the fields persuading themselves that they were working handled their hoes with indescribable awkwardness a sketch of their exact positions would look ridiculously unnatural they were in striking contrast with the zeal and activity of the northern laborer who moves under the stimulus of freedom looking at the captured fortress in the afternoon we passed through the magnolia cemetery and in view of the state arsenal with a palmetto flag waving over it the mills house in charleston was crowded with guests and citizens half of them in uniform after i registered my name a brawny fellow with a plug ugly countenance looked over my shoulder at the book and then regarded me with a long impudent scrutinizing stare 
which I endeavored to return with interest. In a few seconds his eyes dropped, and he went back to his seat. I strolled down the narrow streets, with their antiquated houses, to the pleasant battery, where several columbiads, with pyramidal piles of solid shot between them, pointed at Fort Sumter. Down the harbor, among a few snow-white sails, stood the already historic fortress. The line of broken roof, visible above the walls, was torn and ragged from rebel shots. At the distance of two miles, it was impossible, with the naked eye, to identify the two flags above it. A bystander told me that they were the colors of South Carolina and of the Confederacy. The devices of treason flaunting in the breeze were the stars and stripes, after being insulted for months, were so lately lowered in dishonor, were not a pleasant spectacle, and I turned slowly and sadly back to the hotel. In its reading-room, among the four or five papers on file, was a copy of the Tribune, whose familiar face was like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. A SHORT STAY IN CHARLESTON The city reeled with excitement. In the evening, martial music and huzzas came floating up to my window from a meeting at the Charleston Hotel, where the young Virginian, Hotspur Roger A. Pryor, was one of the prominent speakers. Publicly and privately, the Charlestonians were boasting over their late Cadmian victory. They had not heard from the North. I hoped to remain several days, but the public frenzy had grown so uncontrollable that every stranger was subjected to espionage. One could hardly pick up a newspaper without seeing, or stand ten minutes in a public place without hearing, of the arrest of some northerner, charged with being a spy. While the lines of retreat were yet open, it was judicious to flee from their wrath to come. Designing to stop for a while in North Carolina, whose Rip Van Winkle's sleep seemed proof against any possible convulsion, I took the midnight train northward. A number of Baltimoreans on board were returning home, after assisting at the capture of Sumter. They were voluble and boisterous rebels, declaring in good set terms that Maryland would shortly be revolutionized. Governor Hicks and Henry Winter Davis hanged, and President Lincoln driven out of Washington. They averred with great vehemence and iteration that the Yankees were all cowards, and could easily be whipped out. But when one, whose denunciations had been peculiarly bitter, was asked, Are you going home through Washington? Not I, was the reply. Old Abe might have us nabbed. The Country on Fire We were soon on the clay soil of the Old North State, which, to the eye, closely resembles those regions of Ohio near Lake Erie. Hour after hour we rode through the deep forests of tall pines, from which the bark had been stripped for making rosin and turpentine. My anticipations of quiet proved altogether delusive. President Lincoln's proclamation, calling for seventy-five thousand soldiers, had just arrived by telegraph, and the country was on fire. It was the first flush of excitement here, and the feeling was more intense and demonstrative than in those states which had become accustomed to the revolution. Forts were being seized, negroes and white men impressed to labor upon them, military companies forming, 
clergymen taking up the musket, and women encouraging the determination to fight the abolitionists. All Union sentiment was awed into utter silence. While the train was stopping at Wilmington, a telegram, announcing that Virginia had passed a secession ordinance, was received with yells of applause. Sitting alone at one end of the car, I observed three fellow passengers, with whom I had formed a traveling acquaintance, conferring earnestly. Their frequent glances toward me indicated the subject of the conversation. As I had said nothing to define my political position, I resolved to set myself right at once, should they put me to the test. One of them approached me and remarked, We just have news that Virginia has seceded. I replied with considerable emphasis, Good, that will give us all the border states. Apparently satisfied, he returned to his friends, and they said no more to me upon the all-absorbing question. Submitting to Rebel Scrutiny a fragment of conversation which occurred near me will illustrate the general tone of remark. A young man observed to a gentleman beside him, We shall have possession of Washington before the first of June. Do you think so? Lincoln is going to call out an army of one hundred and fifty thousand men. Oh, well, we can whip them out any morning before breakfast, throw three or four shells among those blue-bellied Yankees, and they will scatter like a flock of sheep. Up to this day I had earnestly hoped that a bloody conflict between the two sections might be averted. But these remarks were so frequent, the opinion that Northerners were unmitigated cowards seemed so universal, that I began to look with a great deal of complacency upon the prospect which the South enjoyed of testing this faith. It was time to ascertain, once for all, whether these gentlemen of the cotton and the canebrake were indeed a superior race destined to wield the sceptre, or whether their pretensions were mere arrogance and swagger. It seemed impossible for the southern mind to comprehend that he who never blusters or flourishes the bowie knife, who will endure a great deal before fighting, who would rather suffer a wrong than do a wrong, is, when roused, the most dangerous of adversaries, a fact so universal that it has given us the proverb Beware the fury of a patient man. The North Heard From New York papers, issued after receiving intelligence of the fall of Sumter, now reached us, and both in their news and editorial columns, indicated how suddenly that event had aroused the whole North. The voice of every journal was for war. The Herald, which one morning spoke bitterly against coercion, received a visit during the day from several thousand tumultuous citizens, who left it the alternative of running up the American flag, or having its office torn down, by the presence of the police and the intercession of leading Union men. Its property was saved from destruction. In next morning's paper appeared one of its periodical and constitutional somersaults. Its four editorial articles all cried, War to the Knife! The rebels were greatly surprised, half appalled, and doubly exasperated at the unexpected change of all the northern papers, which they had counted friendly to them, but they also shouted war even louder than before. At Goldsboro, where we stopped for supper, a small slab of marble, standing upon the mantel in the hotel office, 
had these words upon it sacred to the memory of a lincoln who died of a broken neck at newburn april sixteenth eighteen sixty one an inebriated patriot before the train started again a young patriot whose articulation was impeded by whiskey passed through it asking so there any yankee with on strain for the union man board these cars it can whip him by for jeff davis in the southern confederacy he afterward amused himself by firing his revolver from the car door at the next station he stepped out upon the platform and repeated hurrah for jeff davis in the southern confederacy another patriot among the bystanders at the station promptly responded good hurrah for jeff davis you're the man for me responded our passenger come and take a drink all for jeff davis are yer ain't you yes sir that's all right then but what do you select that abolitionist murphy the legislature for i'm murphy replied the patriot who had been standing up in the group but now sprang forward belligerently who calls me an abolitionist beg your pardon sir reckon you ain't the man but who is that abolitionist you elected here his name's brown isn't it yes that's it brown you ought to hang him just then the whistle shrieked and the train moved on amid shouts of laughter at six o'clock next morning we reached richmond here also i had hoped to stop but the cauldron was seething too hotly rebel flags were everywhere flying the newspapers all exulted over the passage of the secession ordinance and some of them warned northerners and union men to leave the country forthwith the tone of conversation too was very bitter the farther i went the intenser the frenzy and beginning to wonder whether there was any safe haven south of philadelphia or new york i continued northward without a moment's unnecessary delay the railway accommodations grew better an exact ratio to our approach to mason and dixon's line and northern physiognomies were numerous on the train at ashland a few miles north of richmond the first palatable meal since leaving the alabama river was set before us all the intervening distance to the epicurean eye stretched out in a dreary perspective of bacon and cornbread the old dominion in a frenzy half the passengers were soldiers every village bristled with bayonets at fredericksburg one of the polished v v f s on the platform presented his face at our window and asked what the unmentionable to ears polite all these people were going north for as the passengers maintained an heroic reticence he exploded a fresh oath and went to the next car to pursue his investigations a citizen of richmond who occupied the seat with me satisfied that i was sound on the secession question assured me that it had been very difficult to get the ordinance through the convention that trouble was anticipated from union men in western virginia that business in richmond was utterly suspended new york exchange commanding a premium of fifteen per cent we are fearful he added of difficulty with our free negroes there are several thousand in richmond many of whom are intelligent and some wealthy they show signs of turbulence 
and we are perfecting an organization to hold them in check. I sent the money to New York this morning for a quantity of Sharp's rifles, ordering them to be forwarded in dry goods boxes, that they might not excite suspicion. He added that Ben McCulloch was in Virginia, and had perfected a plan by which, at the head of rebel troops, he was about to capture Washington. As we progressed northward, the noisy secession element grew small by degrees, and beautifully less. At Aquia Creek, we left the cars, and took a steamer up the Potomac. THE OLD FLAG ONCE MORE A quiet gentleman, who had come on board at Richmond, impressed me, through that mysterious Freemasonry which exists among journalists, indeed, between members of all professions, as a representative of the Fourth Estate. In reply to inquiries, he informed me that he had been reporting the Virginia Convention for the Richmond Inquirer, but, being a New Yorker, had concluded, like Jerry Blossom, he wanted to go home. He described the convention, which at first had an emphatic majority for the government. But in time, one Union man after another was dragooned into the ranks, until a bare secession majority was obtained. The ordinance explicitly provided that it should not take effect until submitted to the popular vote, but the state authorities immediately assumed that it would be ratified. Senator Mason wrote a public letter, warning all Union men to leave the state, and before the time for voting arrived, the secessionists succeeded in inaugurating a bloody conflict upon the soil, and bringing in armies from the Gulf states. It was then ratified by a large majority. We steamed up the Potomac, past the quiet tomb at Mount Vernon, which was soon to hear the clangor of contending armies, and early in the afternoon came in sight of Washington. There at last, thank God, was the old starry banner, flying in triumph over the Capitol, the White House, the departments, and hundreds of dwellings. Albeit unused to the melting mood, my heart was full, and my eyelids quivered as I saw it. Until that hour, I never knew how I loved the old flag. Walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, I encountered troops of old friends, and constantly wondered that I had been able to spend ten weeks in the South, without meeting more than two or three familiar acquaintances. AN HOUR WITH PRESIDENT LINCOLN A bodyguard for the President, made up entirely of citizens of Kansas, armed with Sharp's rifles, was on duty every night at the White House. It contained two United States Senators, three members and ex-members of Congress, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and several editors and other prominent citizens of that patriotic young state. With two friends, I spent an hour at the White House. The President, though overwhelmed with business, received us kindly, and economized time by taking a cup of tea while conversing with us, and inquiring very minutely about affairs in the seceding states. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, though the crown be only the chaplet of a republic. This man had filled the measure of American ambition, but the remembered brightness of his face was in strange contrast with the weary, haggard look it now wore, and his blushing honors seemed pallid and ashen. There was the same honest, kindly tone, the same fund of humorous anecdote, the same genuineness, but the old, free, 
lingering laugh was gone. Mr. Douglas, remarked the President, spent three hours with me this afternoon. For several days he has been too unwell for business, and has devoted his time to studying war matters, until he understands the military position better, perhaps, than any one of the cabinet. By the way, continued Mr. Lincoln, with his peculiar twinkle of the eye, the conversation turned upon the rendition of slaves. You know, said Douglas, that I am entirely sound on the fugitive slave law. I am for enforcing it in all cases within its true intent and meaning. But, after examining it carefully, I have concluded that a negro insurrection is a case to which it does not apply. Panic in Washington I had not come north a moment too early. The train which brought me from Richmond to Equia Creek was the last which the rebel authorities permitted to pass without interruption, and the steamer, on reaching Washington, was seized by our own government, and made no more regular trips. Before I had been an hour in the capital, the telegraph wires were cut, and railway tracks in Maryland torn up. Intelligence of the murderous attack of a Baltimore mob on the 6th Massachusetts Regiment, en route for Washington, startled the town from its propriety. Chaos had come again. Washington was the seat of an intense panic. An attack from the rebels was hourly expected, and hundreds of families fled from the city in terror. During the next two days, twenty-five hundred well-officered, resolute men could undoubtedly have captured the city. The air was filled with extravagant and startling rumors. From Virginia, Union refugees were hourly arriving, often after narrow escapes from the frenzied populace. Massachusetts soldiers, who had safely run the Baltimore gauntlet of death, were quartered in the United States Senate chamber. They had mustered with characteristic promptness. At five o'clock one evening, a telegram reached Boston, asking for troops for the defense of the imperiled capital. At nine o'clock the next morning, the first company, having come twenty-five miles from the country, stacked arms in Faneuil Hall. At five o'clock that night, the sixth regiment, with full ranks, started for Washington. They were fine-looking fellows, but greatly embittered by their Baltimore experience. In a very quiet, undemonstrative way, they manifested an earnest desire for immediate and active service. Came out to fight. The bewilderment and terror, which had so long rested like a nightmare on the national authorities, which for months had left almost every leading Republican statesman timid and undecided, was at last over. The echoes of the Charleston guns broke the spell. The masses had been heard from. Then, as at later periods of the war, the popular instinct was clearer and truer than all the wisdom of the politicians. During the three days I spent in Washington, the city was virtually blockaded, receiving neither mails, telegrams, nor reinforcements. Martial law, though not declared, was sadly needed. Most of the secessionists had left, but enough remained to serve as spies for the Virginia revolutionists. I left for New York by an evening train crowded with fleeing families. Most of them went west from the relay house, deterred from passing through Baltimore by the reign of terror 
which the rebels had inaugurated the most zealous union papers advocated secession as their only means of personal and pecuniary safety the state and city authorities though professedly loyal bowed helpless before the storm governor sprague with his rhode island volunteers had started for washington mayor brown telegraphed him requesting that they should not come through baltimore as it would exasperate the people the rhode island regiment was sprague's epigrammatic response came out to fight and may just as well fight in maryland as in virginia it passed unmolested baltimore under rebel rule we found baltimore in a frenzy the whole city seemed under arms the union men were utterly silenced and many had fled the only person i heard express undisguised loyalty was a young lady from boston and only her sex protected her several persons had been arrested as spies during the day including two supposed correspondents of new york papers baltimore for the time was worse than anything i had seen in charleston new orleans or mobile through the evening barnum's hotel was filled with soldiers stepping into the office to make arrangements for going to philadelphia i encountered an old acquaintance from cincinnati now commanding a baltimore company under arms if lincoln persists in attempting to send troops through maryland said he we are bound to have his head another baltimorean came up and began to question me but my acquaintance promptly vouched for me as a true southern man and i escaped annoyance the same belief was expressed here which prevailed throughout the whole south that northern men were cowards and persons actually alluded to the attack upon the unarmed massachusetts troops as an act of bravery leaving baltimore i took a carriage for the nearest northern railway point the roads were crowded with families leaving the city and infested by rebel scouts and patrols union citizens were helpless one of them said to us for god's sake beg the administration in the north not to let us be crushed out we hoped to take the philadelphia cars twenty-six miles out but a detachment of baltimore soldiers that very morning had passed up the railroad destroying every bridge smoke was still rising from their ruins we were compelled to press on and on until in the evening after a ride of forty-six miles we reached york pennsylvania the north fully aroused here at last we could breathe safely but both railroads being monopolized by troops we were compelled wearily to drive on to the village of columbia on the susquehanna river there we began to see that the north as well as the south was under martial rule armed sentinels peremptorily ordered us to halt on identifying the driver and learning my business they allowed us to proceed at the bridge the person in charge declined to open the gate i guess you can't cross to-night sir said he i replied by guessing that we could but he continued our orders are positive to let no one pass who is not personally known to us he soon became convinced that i was not an emissary of the enemy and the sentinels escorted us across the bridge a mile and a quarter in length we proceeded undisturbed to lancaster arriving there at two o'clock after a carriage ride of seventy miles thence to new york 
communication was undisturbed. The cold-blooded North was fully aroused. Rebel sympathizers found themselves utterly swept away by a Niagara of public indignation. In Pennsylvania, in New York, in New England, I heard only the sentiment that talking must be ended, and acting begun, that, cost what it might, in money and blood, all must unite to crush the gigantic treason which was closing its fangs upon the throat of the Republic. Uprising of the Whole People The people seemed much more radical than the President. In all public places, threats were heard that, if the administration faltered, it must be overturned, and a dictatorship established. Against the monumental city, feeling was peculiarly bitter. All said, if national troops cannot march unmolested through Baltimore, that city has stood long enough. Not one stone shall be left upon another. I had witnessed a good deal of earnestness and enthusiasm in the South, but nothing at all approaching this wonderful uprising of the whole people. All seem imbued with the sentiment of those official papers issued before Napoleon was first consul, beginning, in the name of the French Republic, one and indivisible. It was worth a lifetime to see it, to find down through all the debris of money-seeking and all the strata of politics, this underlying primary formation of loyalty, this unfaltering determination to vindicate the right of the majority, the only basis of Republican government. The storm-cloud had burst. The irrepressible conflict was upon us. Where would it end? What forecast or augury could tell? Revolutions ride roughshod over all probabilities, and who has mastered the logic of civil war? Here ended a personal experience, sometimes full of discomfort, but always full of interest. It enabled me afterward to look at secession from the standpoint of those who inaugurated it, to comprehend rebel acts and utterances, which had otherwise been to me a sealed book. It convinced me, too, of the thorough earnestness of the revolutionists. My published prediction, that we should have a seven years' war unless the country used its utmost vigor and resources, seemed to excite a mild suspicion of lunacy among my personal acquaintances. A Tribune Correspondent on Trial I was the last member of the Tribune staff to leave the South. By rare good fortune, all its correspondents escaped personal harm while representatives of several other New York journals were waited upon by vigilance committees, driven out, and in some cases imprisoned. It was a favorite jest that the Tribune was the only northern paper whose attachés were allowed in the South. Its South Carolinian correspondence had a peculiar history. Immediately after the presidential election, Mr. Charles D. Brigham went to Charleston as his representative, with the exception of two or three weeks, he remained there from November until February, writing almost daily letters. The Charlestonians were excited and indignant, and arrested in all five or six persons whom they unjustly suspected. Finally, about the middle of February, Mr. Brigham was one day taken into custody, and brought before Governor Pickens and his cabinet councillors, among whom ex-Governor McGrath, was the principal inquisitor. At this time the Southern Confederacy existed only in embryo, and South Carolina claimed to be 
an independent republic. The correspondent, who had great coolness and self-control, and knew a good deal of human nature, maintained a serene exterior despite the awkwardness of his position. After a rigid catechization, he was relieved to find that the tribunal did not surmise his real character, but suspected him of being a spy of the government. His trial took place at the executive headquarters, opposite the Charleston Hotel, and lasted from nine o'clock in the morning until nine at night. During the afternoon, the city being disturbed by one of its daily reports that a federal fleet had appeared off the bar, he was turned over to Mr. Alexander H. Brown, a leading criminal lawyer, famous for his skill in examining witnesses. Mr. Brown questioned, re-questioned, and cross-questioned the vagrant scribe, but was completely baffled by him. He finally said, Mr. Brigham, while I think you are all right, this is a peculiar emergency, and you must see that, under the circumstances, it will be necessary for you to leave the South at once. He is warned to depart. The sweet sorrow of parting gladdened his journalistic heart, but, at the bidding of prudence, he replied, I hope not, sir. It is very hard for one who, as you are bound to admit, after the most rigid scrutiny, has done nothing improper, who has deported himself as a gentleman should, who sympathizes with you as far as a stranger can, to be driven out in this way. The attorney replied, with that quiet significance which such remarks possessed, I am sorry, sir, that is not a question for argument. The lucky journalist, while whispering he would never consent, consented, whereupon the lawyer, who seemed to have some qualms of conscience, invited him to join in a bottle of wine, and when they had become a little convivial, suddenly asked, By the way, do you know who is writing the letters from here to the Tribune? Why, no, was the answer. I haven't seen a copy of that paper for six months, but I suppose there was no such person, as I had read in your journals that the letters were purely fictitious. There is such a man, replied Brown, and thus far, though we have arrested four or five persons, supposing that we had found him, he completely baffles us. Now, when you get home to New York, can't you ascertain who he is, and let us know? Tribune Representatives in Charleston Mr. Brigham, knowing exactly what tone to adopt with the chivalry, replied, Of course, sir, I would not act as a spy for you or anybody else. However, such things have a kind of publicity, and are talked of in saloons and on street corners. If I can learn in that way who the Tribune correspondent is, I shall deem it my duty to advise you. The lawyer listened with credulity to this whisper of hope, though a well-known rebel detective named Schoback, a swarthy, greasy, uncomfortable fellow, with a Jewish countenance, did not. He remarked to the late prisoner, You haven't fooled me, if you have Brown. But Mr. Brigham was allowed to depart in peace for New York. The Tribune afterward had in Charleston five or six different correspondents, usually keeping two or three at a time for emergencies. Often they did not know each other personally, and there was no communication between them. When one was arrested, there was always another in reserve to continue the correspondence. Mr. Brigham, who remained in the home editorial rooms, retouched the letters just enough 
who stamped them as the work of one hand, and the baffled authorities went hopelessly up and down to cast out the evil spirit which troubled their peace, and whose unsuspected name was Legion. End of Chapter 8 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida